Hello Cult Hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad, Stephen. I'm an organisational psychologist, also very interested in cults because I was in one for about 30 years until, well, you came along, Celine. Um, anyway, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Um, so at the beginning of May, we asked the question in one of our topic podcasts, is the royal family a cult? Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces of writing we talked about um, in large part, the inspiration for the topic was a wonderful article on the Electric Lit website called As a Cult Survivor, I Found Prince Harry's Spare Surprisingly Relatable. So today we've only gone and got the author um, mm-hmm. on our podcast. So we're really excited. Welcome, Rebecca Woodward. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Great. So we're very excited to talk to you. Um, and you're, you're a voice we haven't heard very much about or from um, from my perspective. So really interested in hearing your your thoughts and your voice. So maybe um, for our listeners, you could just introduce yourself and how, why you're interested in this topic and a little bit about your background, please, Rebecca. Yeah, so I'm a writer. I live in New York City in Brooklyn. Um, I was raised as a witness, you know, quote unquote, in the truth. Um, and I stayed in it probably a lot longer than I really wanted to. Um, so I always wanted to be a writer and I found it really limiting as a witness, like what I could you know, write about. Um, I was interested in writing about personal experience and I found that including uh, the religion in my writing was very awkward. A lot of things didn't make sense. Um, if you didn't know that about me, but also I wasn't comfortable, you know, writing about my true experiences in it until I ultimately left. Um, So I have only in the last five or so years really been publishing my writing. Um, Prior to that, you know, I was a, like I said, a witness since I was, you know, born. Um, I was fortunate enough that I found a way to go to college. Um, So I ended up working um, in marketing and like social media and content marketing um, and just never really felt at home in the religion. Um, So I moved to New York City kind of as a last ditch effort to find a place in the organization where I felt like I could belong, you know, where there were other you know, single people my age, people who hadn't gotten married at, you know, 18, like the day they graduated from high school. Um, So what I've been writing about recently is my experience after moving to to the city um, and how I kind of gradually came to the conclusion that I needed to be honest with myself about how I felt about the religion and slowly, you know, make the move to separate myself. Yeah, it's an interesting thing when you're writing I guess it forces you into another person's perspective and and yeah you can kind of be like oh yeah does this make sense and then like Mm -hmm. um yeah forcibly seeing it from from outside I guess which is an interesting situation did you kind of find that yeah that was part of what was um, at play for you yeah and actually in like my biggest publication to date, um, kind of an earlier essay that I published in the New York Times in their Modern Love column. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still a witness at that point when that came out. And I felt, at least from my perspective, that I needed to acknowledge that in the piece Mm -hmm. for it to make sense. So the original version of that 
you know, inserted the fact that I was, you know, a witness to kind of explain some sort of plot mm-hmm. points in it. The um, editor ultimately decided that it, it did need to be there. So he decided to edit it out. And I'm mm-hmm. actually grateful that he did. <laughs> um, but I had so much anxiety when that piece came out. because It was... It was kind of a, a humorous essay about a neighbor that I had a conflict with because he um, was having loud hookups next to <laughs> next door to me, and yeah. we were in a fight about getting him to uh, keep it down. So I had so much anxiety about that when it came out. I'm like, am I going to get in trouble because this is talking about sort of a salacious topic, even if it's you know in a humorous way? And I'm very clear in the article that, you know, this is something going on with my neighbor. It it doesn't reflect on, you know, what I'm up to in my life. Um, But the amount of of anxiety that I had about that Mm. piece coming out and the amount of friends that I reached out to, to have them read it ahead of time and make sure they didn't think there was anything in it that I was going to get in Mm. trouble for. I mean, that really, really kind of made me examine, you know, how much I felt I had to edit my own personal experience to both be palatable to like an outside audience that doesn't have that context and, you know, doesn't think the same way that witnesses do. And to also make sure that I wasn't going to get in trouble for it. Because I'd been, I, I'm always surprised at the the things that people get upset about. So yeah. And it's, it, and it's like, um, I kind of describe it as the elephant in your own room all the time, you know, this, mm-hmm. this thing that, and it, it still, for me, you know, it's still the same and it has been doing the podcast and other things, you know, you've got this thing that should you talk about it, it's kind of an important part of your life. You know, we started a podcast and didn't know whether to talk about that bit for me of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of jokingly say it's the only interesting thing about me. So I've got to talk about it, you know, um, <laughs> But it's like, how can you not? It's such a such a big part of your life. But then as soon as you do, then you know it affects so many other people and attitudes towards you and all of that. So that's whether you're in or out, really. It's this, this sort of thing that's sitting in the corner, just um, getting in the way of everything you do. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's really interesting. And um, in, in some of your writing, you talk about, um, I think, it is it the piece for the Huffington Post, you or the Huff Post, rather, you talk about... Um, the COVID um, during COVID and and how that kind of was, was one of the points that was a bit of a catalyst. And, and that's something that we've come across quite a lot, actually uh, it's talking to guests. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that, um, that sort of affected your, your leaving? Yeah, I had actually before COVID, like within the, the year before I had really decided that I was going to leave the organization. So, you know, I'd been dating, I, you know, met my partner now. Um, we've been together since, you know, 2019. Um, so I knew that I was going to leave. I stopped attending meetings. I'd been kind of, you know, dodging phone calls from the elders trying to check in on me. Um, and I think, I think maybe the final kind of nail in the coffin was around the memorial that year. And it was, you know, right during COVID lockdowns, it was a really stressful time. And there was a part of me that was like, what if this is it? Maybe I want to just like listen into the memorial this year. And there was this elder's wife from a hall that I had gone to previously who was um, texting me a lot and checking in on me. And I was like, maybe I'll finally respond to her and just like, 
get the code, listen into their memorial. And maybe that will kind of tell me if it, if it makes me feel better or if it doesn't. And she responded like typical um, witness practice, at least in the U S I imagine this is kind of policy everywhere um, that she couldn't give me the code to like dial into their memorial. I would have to contact like my coordinator of elders to get the code for my congregation. I was like, you know what, this is it. (laughs) Like this kind of, hostility or this this way that the organization was always pushing me away no matter what it's like they spend the entire month you know ahead of the memorial trying to invite the public to come and they won't even let you attend one that isn't in your congregation I'm just like this is never mind (laughs) I'm never attending again and I haven't it's it's interesting that um I guess you decide to leave, um, you get a, a worldly boyfriend, and mm-hmm. then the next year there's a pandemic. That must have... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have the worst timing if this is it. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe this is the worst decision of my life. Yeah, I think a lot of people did feel that way if they were in sort of the the the, the process of fading, you know? So you have all these doubts and you, mm-hmm. you, know, you think um, that maybe um yeah i'm pretty sure it's not the truth but then something happens and uh, we spoke to ali miller i'm sure you're familiar with ali she's a writer and uh, she talks about how um you know when there's a war or there's a missile or a plane gets shot down or something straight away you start getting those feelings again you know so i think that's very very common yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and the one downside like you know i was able to feel pretty secure in my decision to leave during COVID, but it was also, it felt like the worst time to have to tell my family. So mm. I was just going to kind of keep that to myself. And then once COVID kind of passed and things were yeah. back to normal, let my family know. Um, but then my aunt texted me one day to tell me that she knew I had a, a boyfriend. And to this day, I don't know how she knew that, but whatever. <laughs> Somehow she found out this mm. information and she basically threatened me. She was like, I'll, you tell your parents or I will. Right. <laughs> and I was nice. like, this mm. is not the time that I wanted to do it. I did not want to tell my parents while my dad was, mm. you know, texting me at 8 a.m. every morning about, you know, the signs of the end. Yeah. <laughs> but. So how was that? Um, yeah, and this is something you don't have to talk about, of course. Um, but how, how was that sort of breaking that news to your parents and the the process sort of internally of that is is that something you can tell us a little bit about yeah I mean we had not been super close for a while even while I was a witness they're much more you know kind of uptight and and serious about the Mm -hmm. all the rules and the rigidity of the religion so I felt like they you know didn't really even approve of my life when I was a witness right um, so that put some distance between us. They didn't like that I moved to the city. They didn't like my friends that I had there, even though they were, you know, witnesses, oh, had okay. witnesses since birth, you know. So there was already some distance there, even while within the religion. So it didn't feel like as as big a rift to finally let them know. I think it was just it was difficult to tell them without telling them too much about why Hmm. both because you know I was hoping maybe we would still be able to have some kind of relationship if they 
didn't know how I, exactly I felt about the organization, how negatively I felt about some of the beliefs. Um, and I also, you know, they're older. They've kind of mm. made all of the sacrifices mm. for the religion that they've made. And I don't see them, <laughs> you know, wanting to start life over if yeah. they learn that everything that they believed is false. So I also just wanted to let them keep their peace of mind. Mm. I think it's, you know, in their best interest at this point to just kind of, you know, be at peace with their faith. So I tried to just kind of be vague about, you know, I didn't support some of the things that the governing body has done. There are some beliefs that didn't make sense to me. And that since leaving, I'd felt like I had, you know, better relationships in my life, felt more at peace and have tried to keep things kind of you know, light to this point. I don't know if they've ever, you know, read any of my writing about, um, you know, my decision to mm. leave. We don't, we have some limited contact. We text once in a while, mm. um, but it's been quite a while now. So mm. it's, it's possible that they've read that and have decided to cut off contact, but yeah, yeah it's a challenge, but it, yeah, it yeah. might be for the best, you know? Yeah, totally, totally get that. Um, yeah, so obviously growing up in, in the organization, you're a woman, um, which means you don't get to have any kind of ambition within the, the congregation um, other than pioneering, I suppose. How did you find that as a woman growing up in the organization um, and the way that, that you sort of thought about your life looking ahead? Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely... Put you in a weird place as a woman in the organization, especially if you're not someone who kind of marries young and is maybe working part time and pioneering or something like that. If you're someone who has to work full time, whether or not you you know try to go to college before getting that full time job, it does put you in a really difficult position because if pioneering is all you can do and that's not practical for a person who's working full time, then it really, you're not really serving the congregation in a way that they want to reward. So yeah, it does really put you in a weird place. And something that I was thinking about um, when I was reading Perry's memoir is, um, you know, he would talk about how his father and his brother just didn't really understand his complaints. Mm. Um, and I felt that a lot too, when I would, you know, talk to my parents about how I didn't like the way I was treated or the place that I had um, in the congregation is, you know, the system benefits people who get married young and kind of like do the traditional thing. And it's, it's not beneficial to, in Harry's position, you know, the younger son who has to kind of take the bad press. I felt like single women in the organization were kind of in a similar situation where it's like, we don't get any benefits. We're just kind of there. And there were a lot of situations where like elders in the organization were really not welcoming to me. And I don't feel like it was just me specifically. I think, you know, other friends of mine who were also uh, single women also felt that. So it was frustrating to kind of talk about those concerns with my parents who had never felt that kind of either rejection or just like kind of a, a subtle hostility or just an unwillingness to be welcoming. It was it was hard to get other people to understand that they may feel like they're finding acceptance in this group, but other people are feeling like they're getting pushed away. Mm. Yeah, there's there's 
a spiritualness level <laughs> um, and, and trying to find, you know, the people that are spiritual and you want to associate with those people. And I guess, yeah, people be using, yeah. Um, are they, are they a, a young married woman or not as one of those levels to indicate to them um, whether or not that's uh, yeah, a good person to associate with. And it's just, it's one of those things that's not, I guess, spoken about a lot, but it's definitely happening because a lot of people have talked about it. <laughs> yeah. And there are times where I would leave a meeting or would leave uh, an assembly because they were like so kind of hostile to me being there. Like in one congregation, um, it was re a really packed congregation and they tried to leave like the back seats open for like families with young kids and people who are disfellowshipped. But there weren't enough seats elsewhere. But if I sat in one of those back seats, they would kick me out of the seat. But I couldn't find another seat. No, so no. there are times I would I would just go home. Um, I've left assemblies before because I was like cutting it close time wise and trying to find a place to park in a mm. packed parking lot. And there would be a line of cars kind of parked on the grass. And I'm like, well, it's not really a parking spot, but it looks like they're letting people park here. So I'll just I'll do that. And I've had an attendant come up and tell me I had to move my car. I couldn't park there. And like other cars are parked here. He's like, yeah, you can't park here. I'm like, okay, are there any other, other open spots? Like, is there any place else to park? You would just say no. Mm. So I just, I left. <laughs> yeah. It's very strange, isn't it? And and this isn't the first time, as Celine said, we've, we've heard this and, and I'm thinking back to when I was a young man in the organization um, and the way that I would view people um, and yeah, I think, so I, I actually got a full-time job when I first left school at 16 and that was okay with my family, but I was listening to the meetings, um, the circuit overseer, the circuit overseers visits, the circuit assemblies, the district assemblies, and constantly you'd get this counsel about not wasting your life as young people by pursuing worldly goals and getting you know interested in this and that you know actually the the only valuable thing you can do as a young person is uh, dedicate your life to pioneering to serving jehovah full-time so i think there's definitely that i felt that pressure myself which is why i left my good job that i'd got as a 16 17 18 year old 18 year old and, and ended up going window cleaning because i felt that was the right thing to do and of course that made me look at other people differently so you know when i was looking for a wife which of course in the uh, jane austen world that is jehovah's witnesses um that's kind of the the world you're right i think it's time that i took a wife you know um mm -hmm. and so you're now thinking who who do I look for in the congregation? And and straight away it was she has to be a pioneer. You know, she has to be. You needed a spiritual wife. And that the evidence <laughs> of that was whether she pioneered. So yeah, there's definitely a two-tier sort of arrangement in the organization. If you weren't mm -hmm. one of those people, then yeah, I think there's definitely a um uh, I felt it and I, you know, I suppose I was on the uh, the other end of that. Um mm -hmm. so I can imagine that you you were feeling that and that's why you felt this this general hostility towards you yeah and also like pioneering getting married was off limits for me um because when i tried to get baptized initially um i was told no i had a i had a very hard time getting baptized um 
the first time I, you know, was going over the questions for baptism um, with an elder who his mom had, you know, become a witness when he was a young child and he had um, a quote unquote unbelieving father. And he told me, he gave me kind of a, a lecture saying basically that when he and his mom would come home from a meeting, his father would beat him for going to the meeting. And his philosophy was like, I went to the meetings, even though my father would beat me for it. So if you have two, you know, witness parents, there's no excuse for you mm-hmm. to not be at the meeting. Right. Right. And we went, we tried going over the questions. He wouldn't let me look up any of the scriptures. I had to know them all by memory. Oh, and wow. it got to the point where I like broke down crying. I was like, I can't do this. Wow. And I just like went home early. And another time I asked and they said there wasn't, you know, time before the convention or whatever it was to go over them. Wow. And then the third time I finally went over them, they told me no, because I wasn't getting 10 hours of service every month, which my dad researched that is not a requirement to be baptized. No. It's a requirement to be an appointed brother. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my dad confronted them about it and said, you know, this isn't actually a rule. And they kind of took him in the back room and basically said, don't question us. Mm. But I was in college at the time. So what I've always assumed and what, you know, other people I've talked to assumed is that what they really didn't like is that I was in college at the time. But since, you know, that's not actually in the Bible, that wasn't something they could give me as an official reason to say no. Well, no. So, you know, for all that time, you know, I was an unbaptized publisher. So I had to, I was, and I was living with my parents. So I had to live by all the rules. I couldn't get away with anything. And I was a total goody two shoes. Like I was watching elders, kids get baptized and disfellowship within the year. And I was, and I was really questioning like the judgment of elders. Like, can they be inspired by God if they're letting all of these kids get disfellowship or doing whatever they want? And I'm just yeah. a goody two shoes mm-hmm. in college and working like two or three jobs at one time. Like, I'm not up to anything. I have no free time. Um, so that was that was the other big moment where I think honestly, if I didn't live with my parents, I would have left at that time because I stopped going to meetings for like two weeks, maybe around that time. And, you know, my mom came home crying one night and said, you know, you can't keep living here if you're not going to go to the meetings. I was like, they don't want me there. They've been very clear that they don't want me there. Um, but well, you know, it sounds I, awful. I, I'm, I'm really <laughs> sorry, Rebecca. That's, I mean, it's rubbish in, in all ways, isn't it? Um, obviously you, you've ended up leaving. That's hard, but but even being a member of something that, that they're not really helping you is. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's very hard because normally, I suppose, as well for a lot of people, they kind of miss the quote unquote community, but it doesn't really sound like you were getting the benefit of the community even yeah. when you're in. <laughs> well, it's like so much time spent in that mm. unbaptized publisher status where, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't pioneer. I couldn't mm-hmm. become a pioneer and be a person who's perceived as being. Mm. Um, you know, good association because unbaptized publishers can't pioneer. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get married because, you know, baptized brothers were not allowed to date me. Yeah. I was, you know, not a witness technically, mm-hmm. but I also couldn't, you know, date a non-witness because mm-hmm. I was a witness. So it's like that, that weird. Possibly in limbo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So it's like, I, I can't do any of the things that you want young women to do. So what are you expecting me to do with my time? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you may, you know, you may have hit the nail on the head really with the um, the going to college thing. So um, mm-hmm. maybe tell us a bit about why you wanted to go to college and, and how, because I, I, you know, feel that that's one of my biggest frustrations and, um, um, you know, it took me till I was 50 before I got my first degree, you know, so um that's something that has always angered me. Um, mm-hmm. But you managed to do it. So um, how did you manage to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I just barely managed to do it. I think <laughs> even in high school, I didn't really necessarily expect to go to college. Um, I just wasn't thinking that far ahead as witnesses tend not to do, right. tend not to plan very far ahead. Um, so I wasn't an exceptional student, mostly. Like I was I was a smart kid. I didn't do my homework though, because sure. you know, these kids are so busy. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really expect to go, but when I was still in high school, I took some college classes as kind of electives. Um, you could do that if you went to school that had kind of limited um, class options. If there was something you wanted to learn about that they didn't offer a class and you could take a class at a community college. So I did that. So that sort of got me into the college environment. And then I at least had the foresight to take like a standardized test that they use your scores to um, admit you to uh, college. So fortunately, I scored well on that and got mm-hmm. a little scholarship. So it made sense to, you know, keep taking some classes just at community college. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of working and taking some classes, trying to figure out something to do and feeling really frustrated because everything that I wanted to do with my life was in some way incompatible with being a witness. All right. Mm-hmm. So it was, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, but I ultimately ended up transferring from that community college to a four-year university. And I was fortunate to be in an area where going to a two-year school, like a technical school or a community college, was pretty accepted. That was considered okay to do. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate in that. Um, They definitely definitely still discouraged the four-year university. So they didn't like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that point, I made the argument, you know, like I've I've spent so much time in this. I, it makes sense to to finish it, yeah. but the whole time, you know, my parents were always discouraging me. Always, if if I ever complained about like a paper I would have to write or something, they're like, just drop out. Like okay. <laughs> they saw it sort of as a hobby, not as a really valuable way of spending my time. Um, so it took me a long time to finish. It actually took me eight years to finish a four-year degree because mm-hmm. I was mostly going uh, part-time while working to pay for it. Wow. Um, that's another challenge in the U.S. especially is how expensive mm-hmm. um, get, going to university is too. And something that I wish I knew when I was trying to go to, to school is to apply for financial aid in the U.S., you have to give your parents financial information. Mm-hmm. So you're considered dependent on them until mm-hmm. you're 23. Mm-hmm. So I even had trouble getting my parents to like give me the information I needed to fill out the form. And then if you're under 23, they determine your fa- financial aid by like your parents' income. So I couldn't get any financial aid because the college said my parents could pay for it. <laughs> like but they're not <laughs> they mm. are ideologically opposed to it. Um, so I was mostly just paying for it myself until I was 23. 
And then I could like get enough financial aid to finish it. So I wish I knew when I was younger to kind of fight that and go to the school and say, listen, my parents are opposed yeah. to me getting an education. Can we work around this? Because I suspect that I could yeah. have. Yeah, but I just similar wasn't in the UK. that, you know, about the religion I was in at the time. Yeah. It's one of those things you don't always know when you're in it, though, do you, until, yeah, retrospectively. But, yeah, it's the same in the UK. You have to go through a process to prove either estrangement or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Every year, though, every year you got to prove that they're still not talking to you or still not helping. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. They don't make it easy, do they? <laughs> no. So. What 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 a term determination, Rebecca. That is mm-hmm. um, that is very, very inspirational, resilient. and mm-hmm. um, I hope you know others who are listening might uh, take some I don't know some inspiration from that because mm-hmm. I know you know doing a degree is damn hard. I I did it part time. Uh, we we do three year degrees for our undergraduates in the UK, and um, so that was a six year process, um, and it's hard. It is really hard, and what you don't need is is the closest to you basically discouraging you or, mm. or rubbishing mm-hmm. it and um I can imagine that must have been really difficult so that is fantastic what did you study um literature and geography so and of course literature is is become your um your living it's what you now do yeah how, yeah. how did you how did you manage to get into that was this just um you sending people work and how did you get into writing being a writer um, I mean, I was always a writer. I took a lot of you know creative writing classes. One of the college classes that I took in high school was a creative writing class because there wasn't an equivalent class at my high school. Um, so I always knew that that was something that I was good at. Like I was wasn't an exceptional student, but I would occasionally have you know a teacher read my essay aloud to mm. the class or something. So I knew that's something that that I was good at. Um, when I was in college, I had one professor who really tried to talk me into. Um, pursuing an MFA at my university. Mm-hmm. And of course, my parents told me they're they're just trying to get more money out of you. They're mm-hmm. just trying to sell you something. And I had to explain to them, like, as a graduate student, no, they hire you. Like, you don't mm-hmm. pay tuition in this program that right. I was invited to join. Um, but ultimately, I, did, I decided not to just because I was ready to, you know, start working and finally mm-hmm. get out of my parents' house, have my own, mm-hmm. you know, life, which I wanted to. Um, so I was always writing, but like I like I said before, it was difficult to write something that I felt like I couldn't get in trouble for. So, you know, the, mm. the basis of a story is conflict and flawed characters, and I could never come up with a good plot that involved no characters doing anything a witness wouldn't do. Mm. And I don't know how other people feel about it, but definitely in my family, it was like, you can't. You couldn't, you know, be in a play where your character did something a witness wouldn't wouldn't do. You couldn't, like, there was always a a kind of rabbit hole you could go down where anything that you were going to write was kind of wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, I wrote mostly like poetry or very short fiction where that required, you know, not a whole lot of plot. Um, But it was very limiting, which is kind of how I ended up doing more personal writing. Um, because I mean, that's, that's my life as a witness. I'm not doing anything that a witness mm-hmm. yeah. do. But again, like I said, that starts to get in the way because it's ultimately not honest personal writing. Yeah. If you're, if you're not talking about that part of your life. And I suppose as well, you know, when, um, like when I was doing 
creative writing at uni as well it would always be um like you're always yeah I wanted to understand the rationale or like what why would they be doing this or like what's um to, for the audience I guess to understand and if, if you leave that out there's a bit of like but why did she do that because there's like you said there's weird things that witnesses do that they're like yeah. what, why why are they doing that <laughs> um it gets difficult to hold those two pieces um plus you you're not really encouraged to I don't think you you'd learn you you have it naturally because all humans do but empathy is something that in a way you're not encouraged to have empathy in terms mm. of really being open to understand other people's motivations you know so mm. like um good writers even the even the the villains you know you can sort of identify with them to degree and you can start to understand mm-hmm. some of their motivations and that's what makes them interesting characters mm-hmm. but as a witness you're kind of discouraged to to do any of that aren't you and it's the, the dark side of humanity is not to be explored i think no, it's to be bad and to stay bad <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like that black and white morality which yeah. doesn't really work in fiction that's like fairy tale morality and there's a reason <laughs> fairy tales also have like witches and elves and things mm-hmm. and that you have to make a morality tale interesting somehow <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely and of course you can't even talk about those because um exactly. those off right. limits yeah, yeah so um we we interviewed um some musicians going back a few uh well couple of years ago now i think um witness underground project that you perhaps mm-hmm. heard of um you know and uh, same thing if you're a musician you know so much you can't do so you know mm-hmm. you think about the lyrics of the the piece you know and even doing covers of other people's work sometimes the the morals in it are questionable mm-hmm. and then you've got questions about the rhythms and the beats and all that so yeah it just gets in the way of everything i, I can imagine how um how that would be the case yeah and I was I was actually kind of jealous of musicians, um, which, you know, I played a little music, but it, it's not my talent. But I would always think, you know, in the new system, will we have stories like I, you could imagine in the new system, there would be music. But because stories are so built on flaws and um, tension and conflict, I'm like, if everyone's perfect and has no flaws and makes perfect decisions, we can't have stories. So of all the things that I was interested in, I thought I need to be a writer now while Mm. I can, even if it's very difficult to figure out what I can write about, because in the new system, I thought it would be impossible to have books or movies because you couldn't create that plot. Like a musician could... I don't know, write a song about a leaf. I don't know. (laughs) It just felt like I had to do it now or I wouldn't be able to do it later. So that's kind of why I prioritize writing because I thought I had a limited time to do it. That's really, that's a really interesting insight, actually. I want to, I don't want to leave that topic now i want to i want to stand that because <laughs> that's really interesting um, I, I have a um fascination about the concept of paradise earth living forever um i've started a couple of books you know like most people do um never getting any further than the first few chapters but this idea for me of what would it be like to live forever as a human being and i just like to project it millions of years into the future when you know, I mean, our memories wouldn't be able to kind of store all of that information. Uh, millions of years of life, and what would life be like? And you're absolutely right. There would be no, there would be nothing going on, would there? There would, be, if there is no tension, no 
you know, it would, yeah, I, it would be almost Not like a problem being left to solve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's so something that I think has been kind of like a weird misstep from the organization in recent years is they've kind of started speculating more and more about mm. what the new system might look like. Mm. And even while I was in, I was like, it's just sounding worse and worse. They're talking about how we're now we're going to meetings on the new system and we're preaching and we're, you know, living where we're assigned. And I was, mm. it just became less and less appealing. And if that's the only thing that's keeping you in is the hope of, you know, living forever and you're kind of going through with the motions of this like really demanding witness life, you're going to all the meetings, you're going out in service with the anticipation of having the reward of just like this yeah. everlasting life of freedom. And then you find out you're just going to be doing the same stuff <laughs> forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's discouraging. I think that probably some other people felt that, that way. That yeah, really if, you're, if you're just getting through it, you're like, oh, this is hard work now. But at least then I can chill out. And it's like, nah, no. forever. <laughs> no, uh, no lying on your sofa watching the world go by for you. No eating big grapes. You've got to be going out. Yeah. Uh, well, you've got a thousand years of sort of talking to the the resurrected people for a start, haven't you? Mm. Or, or however long that is. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, you're well, right. And yeah so uh i wanted to talk to you about stories rebecca because um on your website which we should get people to visit um mm -hmm. what's the address rebecca woodward.com is it i can't remember yeah, just, yep. just rebecca woodward.com so there's some pieces there that you've written so it's well worth people checking it out and they can read the piece that we talked about on our podcast and others as well so that's well worth a visit um, but you describe yourself as, you know, a storyteller, and that's really what it's all about, the stories. And, and I'm fascinated by that, too, from a psychological perspective. We mm -hmm. often talk about the importance of stories. Um, so tell us why stories fascinate you so much. You've touched on it already. Why do you think they're so important? And what, why do you have to tell stories? Um, I think we all could use uh, some more empathy in understanding of why other people do the things that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think empathy is really what drives me in storytelling, especially when I think I'm writing about um, Jehovah's Witnesses, because I think it's important to have empathy for the individual members of yeah. you know any high control group, especially mm -hmm. when you know, if there are controls in place that prevent them from leaving, you can't say that anyone in the group is like meaningfully consenting to be there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think, you know, when writing about Jehovah's Witnesses, I think it's really important to have empathy um, for the individuals who, even if they're, you know, causing harm to someone else, mm -hmm. they're, they may have, you know, been just denied the opportunity to learn another way to reason. Um, so I think that's really what drives me in storytelling okay. is trying to get to understand other people. Mm -hmm. And I love, you know, anti-heroes. I love stories mm -hmm. that get to like the gray areas of morality, having grown up with that very like black and white moral thinking. Mm -hmm. I like stories that make you kind of question, what would you do in this situation? And, you know, you might think that you would make the moral quote unquote choice in a given situation. But if you really look at a complex situation as it could occur in real life, 
maybe you can't be so sure that you would make the decision that you think you would want to make. And I think it's really good to go through those exercises um, to not just think, you know, of course, there's a right thing and a wrong thing to do in this situation. And of course, I would always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Often it's not clear. And often you can imagine a situation where you would do something that you consider wrong, but it would feel like the right choice in a situation. So I think it's kind of an anecdote to um, kind of the ideology of a lot of groups, any group that kind of plays on an us versus them, black and white kind of way of thinking is to really try to imagine a real life scenario, which is never as, you know, clean cut as it is when you're just thinking about something in, in the theoretical. And I think that's really important for mm. human beings to to really think about things at that level. Yeah, totally. Because how many of these groups are made up of good people? You know, they often are. There's a lot of good people in, in a lot of these groups. Um, and or as a lot of people on the podcast um, before describe it as like as the rank and file and not the people making, you know, the overhauling choices, but understanding, yeah, how <laughs> how people end up making the choices they do and what mm-hmm. contributes to that. Um, I guess it helps with feeling less angry as well. <laughs> Yeah, and there's like a like a fa- a story in my family, which if I'm remembering it correctly, I think it was um, my grandfather who um, was the the PO. I think at the time he was an elder at the, at the time, anyway. And if I remember correctly, he actually had his first heart attack after sitting on a judicial committee, where he strongly believed that the person shouldn't be disfellowshipped, and he was overruled, and he had a heart attack over it. Like, so you can see him as a villain in that situation. Yeah. But also if you kind of look at the situation he was in and think about how negatively it can impact even the people who are making the decision in a situation. I mean, it just shows how these groups are harmful to everyone in them. There might be a few, you know, people here and there who seem to really relish being in the organization, maybe they like seem to enjoy the power of a certain pr- certain position, mm-hmm. um, but it can be harmful to them too. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really the the system that I like to critique more than any individual because you never know how they really feel versus how they have to mm-hmm. behave for for any number of reasons. And there's a lot of performance, isn't there? Um, as I mean. Uh, that's spoken to this before about having to always be giving a good witness and um yeah I've spoken as well about like being a Jehovah's Witness sounds like masking constantly um you know and just constantly living like that but you can't even come home and take off the mask because if you if you really believe you think you're being watched all the time and that's mm-hmm. just exhausting but yeah especially when you're in front of people you don't know how they really feel they're giving a good witness they're doing the work they think they're doing the right thing by you know acting overjoyed and you don't even necessarily have to be a conscious process you know a lot of this has been drilled in <laughs> um mm-hmm. to do but yeah i think yeah you never know what's really going on behind closed doors yeah, yeah so, so stories really help with that i mean i think it's it's an absolute fact in terms of um the psychology of, of what how things affect people how things motivate people that you know you can give people a bunch of facts um and that 
won't have very much impact but give them a story about somebody who's experienced that and um the narrative then that does make a difference and that's why we think it's so important that you know mm-hmm. we we talk to ex-members of these groups and you tell us your stories so that the the act of doing that is i think so important because you know we can say you know you can look at different models of cults and this is what they do and this is their technique and this is how they do this and do that but actually have a story just so much more powerful and and that Mm -hmm. yeah you're right stories are are so important with that i think Mm -hmm. um your your piece about harry and megan let's um let's just touch upon that because that is relevant i think um so um it's quite a polarizing uh pair are harry and megan um you know some people really hate um what they've done because they think it's damaging the royal family other people really think that they've been treated terribly um but i think in your piece you because of the way you're able to look at it from a different angle you're able to say well you know i know some of what how they feel but what um what inspired you to write that piece was that just something that sort of popped into your head one day um, well, I've been, you know, following their journey at the same time yeah. I was going on my own journey. Um, I had always been sort of, you know, I'd kept an eye on the the royal family. It's mm-hmm. something that my mom was super interested in because she loved Princess Diana. Um, so I was always like aware of what was going on, but you know, really got got more invested when I saw what was going on with Harry and Meghan uh leaving and coming to the States during during COVID, um, because it was really mirroring what I was going on and my, my, what was going on in my own life. And I was starting to understand maybe part of why my mom identified so much with Princess Diana. And certainly she wasn't, you know, the only person, um, who, who did. Um, but yeah, that's what really got me much more invested in their story is feeling the similarities there. And I really felt, um, empathy for them in a way that I think some people didn't, they would just, you know, write it off as, well, they're rich, they'll be fine. And that is true. Like they have a much easier time leaving than most people would have leaving a a really high control group. Mm -hmm. But none of that really matters if you have to completely kind of rewire your brain and change the way you've thought about everything since you were born. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they were in a privileged position in a family they or you know at least you know harry did from birth has you know enjoyed being part of the royal family and the privileges that come with that and been part of an institution that does harm as well but he didn't get to choose (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's like it's again it's like you can't say that anyone in this family is meaningfully consenting to being part of the group. Some people might end up really, you know, enjoying it and upholding um, the royal family's traditions. And, you know, if they're, you know, first in line to the throne, they might, you know, be king or queen someday. And they may or may not, you know, use that position in, in a positive way, or they might just, you know, do harm themselves. But again, it's like, they didn't get to choose another way to think about the world. Yeah. So you just kind of have to assess these people within their limitations. You would hope that they would be able to de- develop 
uh, you know, different you know reasoning capabilities or that they would use the position that they have to do some kind of good, affect some kind of positive change in the institution that they're part of. But I mean, you just have to understand the limitations of being taught that something is right and good from birth absolutely. that a lot of people say is not. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it, it, I, one of the things that we found interesting about your piece and correct me if um if i'm misreading your work but um I, I got the feeling that you kind of suggested that um there was a sort of element of pimo about harry um so in in ex jehovah's witness parlance for those of our listeners that are not um physically and mentally out is somebody who has left the organization but still perhaps believes some of the doctrines or maybe all of the doctrines um so it was i right that's kind of what you were you were hinting out there yeah that's kind of what you know from the outside it mm. looked like to me because it in his book it sounded like harry was just really desperately trying to find like some sort of middle ground with his yeah. family yeah. and that sounds like how you behave when you still think that this organization has value. You still want to have some connection to it. You're just trying to get them to understand why it's negatively impacting you, why some element of it needs to change. And you're thinking that there could be a middle ground. Um, and then I think it's when you realize that there can be no middle ground with a kind of a group like this, that you really are able to kind of, come to terms with having to, you know, leave completely. Mm -hmm. and some of the, um, the other kind of stuff I've heard people saying, um, it's kind of like, well, why did he, why does he have to talk about it? Which I think is relevant in terms of all these conversations with faulty groups. So mm -hmm. why, why do you need to talk about it? Just you leave, you had the choice to leave and you did. So why are you talk, going on about it? I think it's relevant again, because we've talked about stories and, I guess, do you have any thoughts on kind of that? And if you've heard that being thrown around a lot? <laughs> yeah, I think like the most high-minded maybe answer you could give to that is that you're writing this story to like warn other people so that they don't become part of, you know, groups <laughs> like this. But I think the real answer is that you want to tell your story. So finally, people will tell you that you're right. Because you've been told that you're wrong or that you're the problem in these groups your whole life. And you know deep inside yourself that that's not correct. That doesn't seem right. But you're not getting any of that, mm -hmm. that um, reassurance from other people. So you want to finally tell your story to people who don't have that mindset from the group, from the cult who can finally tell you, yes, you are right. That is strange. You were treated badly. So I think it's ultimately a little bit selfish, you know, to tell those stories because you want that reassurance. Um, definitely in Harry's situation, you know, it's not like he's really preventing people from suddenly becoming part of the royal family. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it can be kind of selfishly motivated but I do, again, think that it has value for other people uh -huh. because it's just another exercise in learning empathy. So like in his situation, not a lot of people who might be struggling to get by um, or who, you know, live in countries that were formerly colonized by the UK might have zero sympathy for the royal family uh -huh. and for, you know, that level of wealth um, and power. But I think if you you know read his story, you can start to un have empathy for individuals mm -hmm. as people 
and understand why they do things the way that they do. It doesn't mean that any of their actions are necessarily okay suddenly. Um, but I think it just helps you get inside the psyche of someone who has had a very different life experience um, from you. And I think that's always val- valuable. Yeah. Well, that, that's, I mean, that's really insightful. And, and I think you're right. You know, um, a big, I think about my own situation. I think a big part of that is, is that, I guess, validation, if you like. But I guess there's also an element of, um, it's like it's partly how you get seen personally you know so when you're when you're a member of a group you are seen as that person who's a member of the group and regardless of how you respond to that and your beliefs and who you really are it feels like you are identified with this group and so actually people don't know you so when you leave i think a big part of what the process of leaving is all about is trying to establish yourself in the world again as this is actually who i am and i think part of that comes through that story that you tell about yourself um and yeah it's partly your own effort to make mm-hmm. sense of your own life through this narrative that you're now able to create and you want other people to say oh that's the stephen that's the rebecca mm-hmm. actually that's the real person so yeah, I think that's that's perhaps um, another important element from a personal perspective. So it's more than just um, see, I was right. You know, it is a <laughs> it is a process of you know actually trying to understand yourself. That's that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, wanted to to we're sort of coming to the end now, uh, Rebecca. But I did want to just I know you haven't seen the program, but in the UK we've um, had a lot of footage or a lot of um, coverage rather of um, some cases there's been a a tv program a documentary by a footballer's wife um, who is a kind of celebrity in her own right really for various reasons not all great but um, (laughs) she um, Rebecca Vardy did a documentary about her life growing up as a Jehovah's Witness and that has become very big uh, a subject for a lot of discussion Um, And it got me thinking about the way that Jehovah's Witnesses as an organization respond to um, articles, to media, stuff that's on the television, the radio. And it feels to me like they're getting more and more of it recently. I mean, your your article is up there, our podcast, like loads of other podcasts and YouTube channels. And then you've got the, the more mainstream media. There was an article in the mail the other day um, about um, a friend of ours and how does the organization deal with this and and do you see any changes in the way that it's it's working I don't know whether you have any sort of thoughts on that um well I think the most frustrating thing is that the organization uses a lot of like double speak to respond yeah. to things so yeah. I don't I wasn't able to to see the Rebecca Vardy special but I saw a little bit of the response and it sounds like the organization basically said you know, she was never a witness. We don't know her. Mm-hmm. But if I understand it correctly, she was, you know, an unbaptized witness like I was for a long time. And they're definitely counting unbaptized publishers among their numbers when they tell you how many Tova's witnesses there are yeah. in the world. They mm-hmm. certainly have to live by the standards of witnesses. They're mm-hmm. counted as witnesses. But I mean, that's like a common logical fallacy, right? It's like the no true Scotsman fallacy. Mm-hmm. Like, 
they're witnesses unless they do something we don't like and then they're not witnesses yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit rich that they would would come back with the she was number one of us um, mm-hmm. kind of argument mm-hmm. but it's the same thing that they do that I've, I've seen them do in some of these you know child sexual abuse lawsuits is like they'll say until they're blue in the face that elders aren't clergy we're nothing like these other religions until they need to claim clergy penitent privilege to get out of being held responsible for not reporting a child sexual abuse case and then you know suddenly they are clergy Mm. um so that's something that's very frustrating um that's a common practice with them and i think it's why it makes it so difficult to like get through to people who are in the organization is because when you've been you know, if you've been a witness since birth, you've been raised to just kind of accept these logical fallacies mm. and not really see them. <laughs> so it's it's very frustrating to see that happen. And they seem to have gotten away with it in the past. I hope that, you know, authorities are getting a little bit uh, wiser to how the organization kind of says what they need to say in any situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I mean, there were many things that made me want to, to leave the organization, but when they started talking about theocratic warfare, quote unquote, mm-hmm. as a, a tactic, I tell believe- the, Tell was, us, explain that for our listeners that don't know, Rebecca. Yeah, from what I remember of this talk, it was basically saying that if you do something that might otherwise be unethical or or immoral, mostly like lying to an authority. If you're doing it to to protect Jehovah's people or to protect quote unquote true worship, then it's okay. Which I think the kind of example they would use is like if you were if witnesses were banned and you were captured by the police and they wanted to know where all of the the other brothers and sisters were hiding, well, you wouldn't tell them or you might lie to them and that would be okay. And that's kind of how they acquainted sort of the rank and file with the idea that there are situations where lying is okay. But then now they're using it to get away with not being held accountable um, for their own policies for how they've handled uh, sexual abuse cases. So I think that's just like Mm -hmm. a really insidious way of getting around their own morality and like delivering it to the members in a way that makes it seem justified. Like, yeah, that makes sense. You wouldn't want to, you would be willing to, to lie to save someone's life. But at the same time, they celebrate, you know, witnesses who, you know, endured through, you know, the, Holocaust who weren't went to concentration camps because they wouldn't, you know, deny being Jehovah's Witnesses. Could, couldn't you also say, then would it have been fine for them to just say, no, I'm not. I don't want to, sure. I don't want to go to a concentration camp. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. It's yeah. like the the people in charge get to use this excuse to further the interests of the organization. But s- still the individual members are really conditioned mm-hmm. that they should be able to, they should take on uh, responsibility and um, consequences and be honest themselves absolutely i mean the famous the famous example of that is um i think it's malawi wasn't it this is going back a, a long time but the a single party state everybody had to have a party card um to say that they were a member of this political car- party it was a single party state there was no opposition you know everybody um, had to have one of these cards, but the witnesses um, were 
essentially told they they weren't allowed to have one of these mm-hmm. um which meant that some of them were absolutely brutally persecuted and, mm-hmm. and killed um because of of that stance and, and as you say what's the difference in saying well i've got a party card i've signed it but it's just mm-hmm. i know it's not true um exactly the same as mm-hmm. lying to a judge about shunning or um treatment of of sexual abuse cases and so on so yeah you're absolutely right it's a very very good point yeah mm. um I, I don't know about you i mean i'm much older than you rebecca so um i i can remember the time when jehovah's witnesses would virtually never respond to accusations against them so they were very very quiet very rarely would they take anybody to court they would only go to court generally to protect their rights to preach or something like that or worship um it seems that they've definitely over the years taken a more litigious um view so they now sue people for having things on their youtube channel um that are taken from the organization and so on um and they they now respond so yeah this this sort of response after the rebecca verdi documentary around she wasn't a witness or uh, accusing people of being um discriminatory um it's um it's something that is quite quite new and i wonder how effective that's going to be because all that happens is it just drives everybody into a fury yeah i mean it seems like Again, it seems like a, a misstep by the organization. I, I, mean, so. I feel like what it's doing is just creating more news stories in yeah. reputable sources that are pointing out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So now witnesses don't have to go to like an apostate website that they feel uncomfortable visiting, but they're going to like a newspaper of record and seeing yeah. that. I think it's very different. So it seems kind of like they're shooting themselves in the foot mm. by creating all of this media coverage. I mean, certainly the members have been conditioned to kind of accept, like I said, this double speak. but anyone who's already a little unsure, I mean, they're just giving them more, more reason to, to ask questions. Yeah. The, the reason we were told they didn't, because we always just say, why don't the society deny it? Why don't they, you know, and, and the, the reason we were always given was that if you deny it or if you counter it, then it just keeps the story going. And it seems to me that they've completely abandoned that strategy. Now they're just um, sort of going for it. And um, it may be because there is so much more. So, you know, people like you writing about it um there's lots of biographies we spoke to daniel alan cox recently about his memoirs um i've spoken to kimberly miller as well there's ali miller there's lots of people releasing Mm -hmm. books and um stories about it there's films and so on so i guess maybe that's it they feel under under this sort of pressure um it makes you wonder what um how they're going to respond going forward really yeah, I don't, so far, I don't think it's making them look better. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I don't know whether you're aware, but um, the there's a couple of um, dramas, the, uh, the movies, little movies that they produce that seem to have been withdrawn from the uh, coming, upcoming convention that actually cover how to treat disfellowship people. So it seems like they are starting to respond um which feels like a good thing to me that that's that's actually giving into proper pressure isn't it yeah i mean i wish that that meant that they might 
you know, change the direction about shunning. But I think what they actually will do is just stop putting out publicly available materials that are promoting the shunning policy and just expect like members to not notice that there's less of that direction. Mm -hmm. And then they can tell, you know, authorities, you know, we've stopped promoting this. We've stopped telling people they need to do this, but individual members won't have noticed. They won't, you know, I don't think suddenly read a letter to all of the congregations and say, good news, you don't have to shun your family members (laughs) anymore. They just won't tell members and they'll rely on just how things have always been, that members will just keep keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Unless they're explicitly telling members to change the way they do something, they're just going to keep doing the same thing. But they can say, we stop, we stop telling them. It's they're just making a personal choice now <laughs> and it's kind of what is what these sorts of groups do and other groups have done similar but i guess um it's a start you know and um one thing that uh, they do know is that you have to keep telling people to do things um so if it's not quite as obvious if it's not if it's not out in the open quite so much then people might start to individual witnesses might start to make their own decisions if it's you know the, the punishment isn't so great so Anyway, that's, think, that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like that authorities are kind of going specifically after the shunning policies because then, you know, a reasonable witness can't see that as persecution the way that the organization talks about it. The organization is, you know, always saying that, you know, authorities want to prohibit their way of worship completely. They're going to ban witnesses. They're just flat out against witnesses. And when the authorities are just going after one single policy, that's like, they're they're saying it's fine for you to, you know, worship how you want. We're not going to, if you want to keep doing this, that's fine. We just want to make sure that people get to choose whether they participate or not. then it's it's a different story because if they were ever pressured into changing the disfellowshipping policy i mean i feel like most of our issues with the organization would really start to slip away because at least people can leave and if things are you know open and people feel like they can choose to participate or not that that's really on them there would still be of course the issue of how they're handling you know abuse cases it wouldn't take care of all of those issues Mm -hmm. but ultimately i don't care if any of these members want to continue to worship their religion i don't care if my parents keep you know Mm -hmm. worshiping their religion i don't think it should mean that we lose all contact with our friends and family and i don't think you should be punished for just changing your mind and i think that goes against freedom of religion which witnesses have always you know kind of held themselves up as a proponent of freedom of religion but that's that's not the case absolutely you're totally spot on there and um i mean that's their teeth isn't it i think that this is why it's so important is because the the shunning policy this fellowshipping is the teeth really mm-hmm. um or are the teeth of the organization without that then other rules like blood transfusions um even um sex before marriage or all of those things they can recommend that people behave in a certain way but if the shunning they can even say you're no longer a jehovah's witness but if the shunning policy goes away then i think that the teeth have gone people's fear of of the elders fear of the organization has has gone for the most part so yeah that would be such a really important area and and actually the authorities so far there's a couple of countries in europe um who have gone down that road norway i think is the the 
the biggest one that have but all they've done is said that the charity or you can't be a registered sort of religion or charity so it's not like they're not allowed to be jehovah's witnesses anymore it's just that you can't get benefits from the state um as a religion which you know is, is actually quite a mild sanction um so yeah but still obviously important for the witnesses yeah mm. yeah Cool. All right. Celine, have you got anything finally to, to ask Rebecca before we wrap up? I've not got any final questions. It's just been really fantastic um, speaking yeah. with you. I'd just like, thank great. you for, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's been great to, to meet you both mm-hmm. and talk with you. Yeah, I mean, good luck with, with your writing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 I'm sure I saw somewhere that you're writing a book. Is that right? Yep, yep. I'm working on a memoir and essays that's, oh, I like to call it a uh, tragicomic memoir and essays. <laughs> so I want to you know, dig into some of the absurdities of mm-hmm. kind of witness life, which oh, I, I think gets drowned out by some of the more serious traumas. But I think that's an interesting way to look at being a witness as well. Oh, totally. I'm, to I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I can't wait. That's great. Uh, so good luck with that and good luck with your, you. your work. We'll definitely follow your, your work very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to talk to you again sometime. Thank you, Rebecca Woodward. Great. Thank you.